All right, how we doing? So, Jace is doing all right. All right, if you have a Bible, uh, here's how I'd love to proceed in the Gospel of John. If you have a Bible, uh, pick it up. The one thing that I said with uh, putting the Scripture up on the screen is that you don't get to like, see the whole thing unfold on both pages and where those verses kind of all play together. And so I'd really prefer that you guys have a Bible that you bring with you each week. And uh, if you don't have one, you can go to the bookstore. They have the New Living Translation. That's what I teach out of. It's called the NLT. Um, and you can get that in the bookstore on Sunday. I think we'll have some here pretty soon that you guys can pick up uh, in the lobby. So uh, we're going to continue in John uh, today. And let me start by just uh, like replaying a moment from when I was your age. I was actually a junior in high school when this happened. Any basketball fans here? All right, so it was the NBA Finals, and believe it or not, it was the, the New York Knicks versus the Houston Rockets. I know that would not happen right now, but it was the New York Knicks versus the Houston Rockets, and I remember going home early from baseball practice because everyone wanted to see this game. NBA was like, you know how NFL is like the thing now? Like when I was growing up, NBA was the thing. And so we're all excited to watch the finals. We're sitting down, we got chips and dip. We got a party going on. And I remember all of a sudden, the game shrunk. The screen shrunk to the bottom corner of the screen. And it was breaking news. And all of a sudden, we're watching this white Bronco roll through LA with like dozens of cop cars following behind this white Bronco. Now, some of you guys know what this is, but we were really confused. There were people all along the freeways that were cheering for the white Bronco, and the news reporters filled us in. O.J. Simpson, now that, might, that name might not mean much to you, but this would be like Tom Brady's status. Like one of the, the world's most famous football players had a handgun and was, was threatening suicide as he was rolling through uh, L.A. in this white Bronco. Uh, we could not believe it. It's like immediately, the game still went on in the corner of your television screen, but nobody was paying attention. And immediately, you're thinking, what in the world is happening? The news reporters continued to fill us in, and uh, apparently, O.J.'s ex-wife, Nicole, had been murdered. Along with her boyfriend outside of their apartment, O.J. Simpson was a suspect. Immediately. We're asking ourselves, could O.J. Simpson, can you guys imagine, could Tom Brady really have murdered? I mean, it was like that kind of shock. O.J., it went on for hours. Actually, 95, check this out, 95 million people watched that car chase that day. And eventually, O.J. that evening pulled into his house, and I can remember his teenage son running out and hugging him, and the police cars ended up taking him away. And he went into custody as a suspect or arrested for the, for, the, um, for the double murder. He's facing the death penalty. Six months later, the trial of the century began. And this trial lasted 10 months. Now, till this day, this is the most highly publicized event in, in, in American history. Let me say that again. The most highly publicized event in human history. I mean, in American history. Why? because they allowed the television to film every second of the trial. And I remember as a junior in high school, it was like you watched the trial 
you're thinking, did OJ do it? I want to see the evidence. I want to see the witnesses. And you like, like the witnesses, you knew them. You knew their story. You heard the evidence. You talked about it at school. And then the next day you were, you were back there watching the news again. And the next day you were at school and you were talking about it. And for me, uh, it was not life or death. It was entertainment. It was curiosity. I was interested in it. But for OJ... There was a jury, and this jury deliberated for 10 months and heard this evidence constantly for 10 months and then finally came up with a a verdict, not guilty. And the conversations were heated. People went, people freaked out. Some people were like, no way. We heard the evidence. We heard the witness's testimony. For sure, OJ did this. And other people were like, there is no way OJ did this. Remember that one piece of evidence? The glove didn't fit. You must acquit. That was what Johnny Cochran, his lawyer, said. And it was like all these things. By the way, the Kardashians, do you ever wonder how they got famous? The Kardashians' dad was the lawyer for OJ Simpson. It was like the the first time I heard the Kardashian name. So people were freaking out. And I remember this being a fairly important moment but really entertained by it as a junior in high school. But for, AJ, or for OJ, as he sat there and he listened to the verdict, it was life or death. Why in the world does it have anything to do with John? The book of John is much like a trial. The opening statement is made by, uh, recorded by John. He makes the statement that the creator of the world from the book of Genesis, the one word that spoke into the darkness and brought light, that light that brings life to everything and all creation, that light had entered the world. He had come into the world he created, and he was bringing and offering eternal life to all mankind. Tonight and the rest of the series in John, I want you to think like this. We're the jury. We're in the audience. We get to, along with billions of others, listen to what John says as he tries to lay out evidence as he calls witnesses, as those witnesses give testimony. I remember thinking that uh, I needed to have blind faith, that blind faith was something in Christianity like, if I believed in Jesus, it was just because I had blind faith. I just believed. The more I've learned my Bible, I understand that the Bible never says that. In fact, John, thousands of years ago, wrote this whole story down so that you would not have to have blind faith. He says later in the gospel, he says that I could have written down so many more stories, but I chose these stories to prove to you so that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that believing in his name, you will have eternal life. You have to wrestle with this. This is not, uh, you know, the O.J. Simpson trial was a life and death decision for O.J. This is a life and death decision for you. You've grown up in the church and you're like, yeah, I believe it. This is something to wrestle with. Why do you believe it? Have you you weighed the evidence? Have you considered, have you asked questions? Have you listened to the testimony of the witnesses? What is your faith based on? And you're gonna wrestle with these as we go through John. Who is Jesus? John says he's the son of God. That's a pretty bold claim. What facts does he have to back it up? John is not written to entertain us. John is written to save us. 
And salvation comes from Jesus. And he's laid out the story of Jesus for us. You also need to wrestle with this. Um, because this is literally life and death for you. The claims in John, the claims that Jesus makes, listen to this. Everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Anyone who believes in God's son has eternal life. Anyone who doesn't obey the son will never experience eternal life, but remain under God's angry judgment. It's literally a decision between life and death. Do you guys know why there's not speakers up here today? You guys know why we were in the, in the worship center last week? Because this is where we host funerals. And we've had um, Greg, my friend in the church, he passed away at dinner with his wife in New York City. They were on vacation. He was eating dinner with his wife, and he fell over dead. Uh, you have a friend at Perry, uh, some of you, whose mom has just passed away. We're having a funeral in here tomorrow. Um, a friend, uh, uh, someone that works at the church just lost this week uh, their 28-year-old son in L.A. Like, death happens. We're, we're, we're remembering 9-11, right? So thousands of Americans' lives died. And here's the thing I want you to get. You are going to have a funeral. Do you get that? Like this thing we're going to have uh, tomorrow to remember um, this lady, you're going to have that moment. Some of these people are going to be at your funeral crying and telling stories about you. We don't escape it. And the writer of Ecclesiastes said this, it's better to go mourn at a funeral than go feast at a wedding. Why would that be better? Because in the busyness of life and all the distraction of life, at a funeral you go, oh my God, that's gonna happen to me. I can't escape the grave. The claims by John in this book is that Jesus beat the grave. He went into the grave and he defeated the grave and he said, all of those that are in me, that by faith have put their trust in me, I will raise up out of the grave too and you will have eternal life. That's good news. So the trial begins now. We're in the courtroom, we're in the audience, we're listening. John's opening statement. The creator of the world brought light into the world. He came into the very world that he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believe in him, he has given the right to become children of God, and they experience a new life, a rebirth, John 1.10. Jesus is God's son. John calls his first witness. Now, this is going to get a little bit confusing because in chapter 1, the first witness is called John. We're going to call him the Baptist because it's John the Baptist. John the Baptist is not the one that is writing this story. The man they call the Baptist He's dressed in camel skin. He's got a leather belt around him. He's got wild hair. He's in the wilderness, baked, tan skin, leathery skin, and he's from the mountains. He's eaten locusts and honey. And you're like, this is the first witness? We're talking about God becoming man, and this crazy man is who you're calling to the stand? Now, what 
it's estimated that, that John uh, the Baptist is, uh, is baptizing thousands of people out of hundreds of thousands of people that have left the city of Jerusalem and gone out to the Jordan River. It's about a seven-hour walk, and people are flocking. It says everyone in the whole area of Judea, which is the whole surrounding area of Jerusalem, is going out to see this wild, crazy Baptist. And we're in the courtroom going like, all right, this is interesting. Dude's got hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people following him. He's wading out in the water, and he's literally dunking people into the water, submerging them, and then yelling out to the crowd, a back and forth question and answer, and more people dunking them for months. There's a buzz about who this man is. Can you picture it? Thousands of people wading in water, getting submerged. I'm gonna take us out of this courtroom for a little bit and kind of help us to understand what this baptism is. Like what in the world is he doing plunging these people into water? So if you've been to a baptism service here, there is a Christian baptism that now we do in our church that's a little bit different. And we're gonna talk about that on a different day. It's really important that you would, you would understand what this Jewish baptism is all about. I just took a trip to Jerusalem this last year and I got to see this, what, where baptism gets its name. And the Jews would understand that when you go to a temple, you go to the temple in Jerusalem, first of all, do you know how big that temple is? Imagine seven football fields side by side. Seven football fields lined up. This is how big this temple is. It is massive. And there's this place that the Jews go to worship and they go to make sacrifices for sin, for forgiveness of sin each year. And there's like a hole carved out of the ground and there's stairs that go down and then literally you just turn and there's stairs that go immediately back up. And so the practice of offering a sacrifice for sins was before I went into the temple, I walked down the stairs and I plunged or submerged myself into the water and I came out of the water and now I put on new robes and I was ceremonially clean. That is, all the impurity and uncleanness of my life outside there, I'm now going before God clean of all that unclean stuff. And from there, after I'd been submerged or baptized, I'd come out and I'd pick up my lamb and I'd walk to a priest. And that priest would slaughter the lamb. And you think, what in the world? Why? This is a blood sacrifice. Why blood? Why death? You've had to have wondered that, right? I want you to think of it like this. Like, like the God in the temple is so pure and so intensely good that anything bad or impure that comes before this intensely good God, evil like evaporates, evil dies. He's so good. The word is he's so holy that anything unholy cannot survive. And so death ensues. Imagine that God is asking you to be in relationship with him. And now I've got to go before this God who's intensely good, and I know myself. I'm speaking honestly. I know there's evil in me. I know there's unclean in me. And now he's asked me to be in this relationship with him. And I say, no way. I can't survive it. It's intensely good. And I have evil. I can't survive. But God is gracious. He's provided a way for me to be in relationship with him. 
and he's provided it through the blood of a lamb. The lamb's life is given instead of my life. Blood is the symbol of like life. The life of the animal spills out in its blood. And so the lamb dies instead of me so that I can be created, so I can be considered clean, so that I can be in relationship with God. Okay, so we're gonna go back to the scene. There's baptism, ceremonially clean, and now sacrifice, make a blood sacrifice, and now I can stand before God. But before we go back to the scene with John the Baptist, there's something interesting as I was reading this. Why isn't John doing this at the temple where God said we should do this? Why is he doing it out in the Jordan River? Why isn't he following the protocol? And I began to wonder, and as I study, it had been 400 years since God had been in that temple. That temple was empty. In fact, this is a time of waiting where people were waiting for God to come back to the temple. And so John the Baptist on the outside of the city says, come out of that wicked city. You've been disobedient to God and come out here and become submerged or baptized and become clean. The prophet Isaiah said that there was one coming and God would come back to Israel. God would come back to Israel and he would forgive sin forever. He would restore Israel from their broken ways to a relationship with God and then God was gonna pour out his blessing on them through his Holy Spirit. He was gonna send the Spirit of God into people, inside of them, and that through them they would go to every corner of the earth and spread God's blessing. And all of Israel is waiting for this day. All right, there's the background information. We're going back to John the Baptist. These people are coming out, hundreds of thousands of them, with hope. We hope the Baptist is telling the truth. They've come in their rebellion and shame. They've come with sicknesses and they need healing. They come feeling betrayed by God and they want to be loved. They're hurting and they want God to return and restore them, and so they come with hope. We're the jury. We've given some insights to understand a little bit more about what the Baptist is doing, and to be honest, he seems a little crazy. In the courtroom, there's something called a cross-examination. Shake your head if you know what a cross-examination is. So you give a testimony, we call you as a witness, and the first thing I would do is like, well, how do we know this like wild-looking man is actually legit? How do we know he's telling the truth? And so we begin to pepper the witness with a cross-examination. Like, how do we know you're legit? This is what's happening when we pick it up in chapter one, verse 19. This was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders sent priests and temple assistants from Jerusalem out to where he was baptizing to ask John, who are you? The men in the story and us in the courtroom want to know, can we trust this witness? Is his testimony legit? Who is this man? Verse 20, John came right out and said, I am not the Messiah. The Messiah is the word for this one that would come and restore Israel. He's a king. And right away, John says, I am not him. Well then, who are you? They asked, are you Elijah? 
No. The prophecy in Isaiah said that before the Messiah comes to restore Israel, one of the old prophets, Elijah, would actually come and pave the way for this Messiah. He says, no, I'm not Elijah. Are you the prophet we're expecting? No. Then who are you? We need to give an answer for those who send us. Verse 22, what do you have to say about yourself? Verse 23, John replied in the words of the prophet Isaiah, I am a voice shouting in the wilderness, clear the way for the Lord's coming. Now that for your ears means nothing. But for these people, the reason they were waiting for Messiah is because they have read and studied the book of Isaiah and they knew that God said, I am coming back and I want you, this is how you'll know when I'm coming back. Listen to the one crying out in the wilderness. Listen for his voice. And when you hear it, he will cry out, make way for the Lord. So when John is giving his testimony on the stand, who do you say you are? And he goes, remember the prophet Isaiah? I'm that voice you're supposed to listen to. John, who's writing this now 800 years ago, I mean, John the Baptist is crying out in the wilderness, make way for God, become baptized become submerged in the water and become cleansed so that when Messiah shows up, you will be ceremonially clean before this holy God. Then the Pharisees who had sent, this is verse 24, the Pharisees who had been sent to ask him, if you aren't Messiah or Elijah or the prophet, what right do you have to baptize? Like you have hundreds of thousands of people out here. Who are you if you're not any of these major names that we're looking for? John doesn't establish his credibility immediately. He tells them, I baptize with water, but right here in this crowd, someone you don't even recognize, though his ministry follows after me, I'm not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandal. John immediately, they say, are you, are you the Messiah? No. Are you the prophet Elijah? No. Are you a prophet? Come? No. Well, who are you? Listen, I'm just, I'm just baptizing with water, but there is someone that you want to know, and he's coming. We know that our witness is humble. He's not in it for himself. He has nothing to gain by fooling us. Who draws a crowd of hundreds of thousands and then immediately gives it away to somebody else, all the attention to somebody else? All right, out of the courtroom, into dwell. We know how the temple worship works now, right? We get submerged, and then what do we do? What's the next thing? Sacrifice. We don't have a sacrifice in this scenario. There's a baptism, there's a submersion out of the water. Let's pick up in verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, look, thousands of people. He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He looks at a man and he calls him a lamb. They came out of the water ceremonially unclean and then he points them to God's sacrifice. This is not a cute little animal, a pure white fluffy little sheep, a lamb. This is a grown man. And he points at him and he says, He's the Lamb of God 
this is not a sacrifice that I bring to God. This is a sacrifice that God has brought for you. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of what? The world. And he says, a man is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed in ancient days. He existed long ago before me. I did not recognize him as the king, as the Messiah, the chosen one, but I've been baptizing with water so that he might be revealed here now to Israel. And then John, with his testimony on the stand, he says this. Look, this is his experience. How do I know? Look, I saw the Holy Spirit descending like a dove from heaven and resting upon him. I didn't know he was the one, but when God sent me to baptize with water, he told me, the one on whom you see the Spirit descend and rest, he is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I saw this happen to Jesus, and I testify. The witness is testifying. Jesus is the chosen one of God. He says this, he's not only the sacrificial lamb, but he's also the one that will submerge or baptize in what? Not water, the Holy Spirit. Now we stand before God and we come before God, all of us. All of us will have a funeral. And we stand before God unclean. Do we have a baptism? Has the whole, have I been submerged into God through his spirit, his Holy Spirit? Has Jesus done that to me? And has there been a sacrificial lamb that's paid blood for me so that I can have a relationship with this God who is so intensely good that I cannot survive his presence without a baptism and without perfect blood? The claim of this book is that Jesus is your baptism and that Jesus has come to provide the perfect sacrifice so that when you stand before God, you do not perish, but you have eternal life. After the courtroom, you guys know what happens to the jury? They go into what's called deliberation. They go into a room with the people that just heard the audience, and they talk about it. What evidence did you like? What didn't make sense? Can we trust that witness? Is this testimony true? Is there enough evidence? Remember, John is not asking us to have uh, blind faith. He's saying, deliberate. Go into your small groups and say, I believe. Or go into your small group and say, I still don't know. I'm interested, but here's a question I'd want you to ask. What would you need to hear? It's the evidence you're looking for. And have an open and honest conversation. I've told the leaders, I want this to be like a free discussion where you can discuss exactly where you're at. I believe, but I don't quite know why. And I'd really like to have some evidence where I do believe, and here is my testimony. Or I'm just trying to figure this thing out, and I need your help to help me. Let me pray for you, and then you can go into your small groups tonight and deliberate.
Father, it's good news for us. Sin has entered the world, and because of sin, this place is broken, and we have to go to funerals and cry. And yet you had a funeral, and you got up, and you beat the grave. You beat death, and you tell us that you will be our sacrifice when we stand before you, and that you will be our baptism with the Holy Spirit, and that we can have eternal life with you. And Lord, belief is not based on a blind faith. John has written that so we might believe. We pray that the Holy Spirit would convict us and convince us of his truth and that you would just create an open environment in these groups to discuss freely where we're at. We pray in Christ's name, amen.